0: I'm here today once again with Ken Cohen. And Ken is going to be here for a completely different series now. Let me give you some background. Ken Cohen, MA, Qigong and Tai Chi Grand Master, has practiced these arts since 1968. He was the only apprentice to Taoist abbot Wang Gangshi, 1910 to 1999, and also trained with BP Chen. Madame Gao Fu, and William C.C. Chen, from whom he received a teaching certificate in 1974. Ken is the winner of the Lifetime Achievement Award in Energy Medicine, and is the author of The Way of Qigong, and more than 200 articles on spirituality and health. A bridge between ancient wisdom and modern science, he was the first person to teach Qigong in North American medical schools and has been hosted by numerous health and cultural organizations. So Ken was here for a series on uh, Native American spirituality and medicine. Now, today, we're going to be finding out about this parallel life. So welcome back, Ken Cohen.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: So we found out one entire chunk of your life story in our last session, which was kind of at the beginning of my podcast series, we have you back. And I, I sort of feel like we're, we're learning about a parallel life for you. So can you kind of contextualize that as we, we begin to dig into your, your history in Qigong?
1: Sure, well, usually I keep these two kind of hats that I wear quite separate, especially, you know, in the United States, to be frank, people people have a hard time with dual expertise especially if both, both paths involve spirituality. If I were to say, well, I have a degree in anthropology and mathematics, you would just look at me and say, hey, this guy's pretty talented. But if you hear that, <laughs> excuse me, if you hear that someone is, uh, uh, oh, is trained by indigenous elders and is also a Qigong master martial artist, uh you might think, well, what is that like? How do you do both of those at once? I, in a sense, I, I don't do both of them at once. That is, if I'm if I'm giving a class in French, which I hope I never do, my French is terrible, but let's let's say I was teaching a French class, I would not want to teach it in this way. Uh maintenant je vais vous enseigner un peu de you de genre, What I just said was, now I'm going to teach you some, and then I suddenly switched to Chinese, which I do speak fairly well. Uh, So I started by saying in French, now I'm going to teach you. And then I said Chinese, which I speak much much more fluently. I'm not going to mix languages or mix paradigms. Then you end up with this kind of, I don't know, mixed up spirituality, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, or as the Indian sage uh, Radhakrishnan put it, if you dig a hundred wells and none are deep enough to strike water, they're all useless. For most people, I would say, devote yourself to whatever is your calling. But my calling has been these two, as you put it, parallel paths. So as an educator, in order to do them justice, I keep them quite separate. I certainly wouldn't teach Taiji or Qigong in the middle of a class about, Indigenous culture about North American Indian culture. Uh, nor would I teach uh, North American Indian culture, or start or, or start singing a native song, or bring out a drum in a class on qigong. That's completely inappropriate. People are there to learn whatever it is you know they they are there for. Um, and also, you know these are these are two. Somewhat different, complementary in a way. I mean, they're both part of me, but they're different ways of understanding life, different ways of understanding health and disease. They have their own unique strengths, I suppose, their own unique deficits as well. So I usually speak, you know, from one perspective or the other, but I don't, uh, I don't mix them.
0: So that'll beg the question. Before we get into the, the history, maybe as an introduction to the topic, you mentioned the notion that these Chinese arts have toward health and disease. So how would you describe that in a nutshell?
1: So you probably heard the of the concept qi, life force, life energy. And if we look at the ancient forms of that Chinese character when the Chinese language was still truly pictographic before the characters were standardized to make them easier to learn, we find out something quite interesting because when you look at the ancient characters, the etymology, the origin of the word is still visible. So one of those ancient characters for qi was a picture of the sun. So qi is the vital warmth. Another ancient one shows the word for without in the upper part of the character and four sparks from a flame underneath that so what does that mean without flame without fire it implies that the implies several things one is that the state of health is based on a kind of balance and equanimity not getting fired up, we would say, not getting worked up about things. So no fire means no thoughts and no disturbing emotions. But no fire is also shorthand for the formless fire of life, the formless fire of life. And finally, the more modern character for chi for life energy, pictures steam rising from cooking rice. Well, that means that our life energy, our health and vitality is based on our lifestyle habits, what we eat, what we consume, that's the rice, but also how we breathe. The steam rising from the rice is an ancient symbol of of the breath, Think of the steamy breath that leaves the mouth on a cold morning. So the steam is the breath. And basically, qi means the life energy we get through our lifestyle. Healthy eating, healthy breathing, healthy exercise. What is qigong? qigong is energy skill. It's a system or you could say various systems of posture, movement, breathing, and meditation, especially visualization, to purge the Chi of toxicity and to balance its flow. One of the, one of the basic concepts in, in Chinese medicine, in Taoism, in qigong, is that movement is health. When the energy stops moving, when it's stagnant, then like stagnant water, it becomes a breeding ground for disease. You know how those toxic algaes will grow on stagnant water, but but rarely on moving water. So in an analogous way, if the energy is moving in our bodies, if the qi current, is not blocked, then we're more likely to be in a state of optimal health. If you have a blockage in that flow because of tension, physical tension, emotional tension, because of influence of your constitutional chi, what we would call your genetics, because of stresses in the environment, if for whatever reason there's a block in the current of life force, then you'll have too much energy on one side of the dam in the river, you could say, and too little energy on the other, too little water on the other side. So if you went to an acupuncturist, the acupuncturist would put a needle in that blocked area. And as the dam opens up, the region that has too little energy is filled, the region that had too much energy is drained out. And so balance or homeostasis is restored. If you had too much energy, perhaps you had a tendency towards autoimmune disease or allergies, diabetes. From a Chinese viewpoint, that's too young, too much energy, too strong an immune system. If you had too little energy, then there's a tendency towards depletion, weakness, perhaps even immune deficiency diseases, such as cancer, which is a condition of too yin, too little energy in, in many respects. Now, if you're doing qigong you're practicing acupuncture without the needles that is you're learning to self-regulate the flow of qi to balance out the flow to dissolve those blockages through posture movement breathing and meditation so that's you know that's the the basic kind of overview of what is qi, what is qigong, qigong, qi qi skill, the skill of regulating the life force to improve health and well-being. But also, you know, that life force, we, we sense it everywhere. When you, when you look at a, now I'm looking right now at a magnificent oak tree. There's a gentle rain falling. And that oak tree has such a presence. This is just a human experience. You know, we, we all encounter things in nature that give us this sense of awe. Maybe it's the sound of thunder or that oak tree outside my window. Where does that feeling come from? We are sensing the chi, the life force in nature. And we can commune with that. We can allow that feeling of the chi to transform our bodies, our minds, our spirits. We can express the qi of nature in a poem, in a painting, in a dance. So qi is much more, when we say qi gong, qi skill, even though that is normally applied to these healing exercises, <coughs> even though it's normally applied to these healing exercises and meditations, you could say with perhaps a little bit of poetic liberty that qigong is the skill of sensing the qi in multiple contexts, including in nature and through art, through poetry, through something as simple as observing a sunset, watching the hawks playing in the air, that's also Qi. So you see the problem with also pinning down a, a definition because the connotation of words in one language don't always apply to another language, which is why I have a little problem simply saying, you know, you probably wanted a simple answer. Well, what is Qi Qi's life energy? What's Qigong? You're working with the life energy with exercise. Well, yeah, yes and no. The, the problem is life and energy or life energy or, or vital breath is going to mean something a little bit different. Doesn't quite carry the richness that the Chinese words have, which is why you need almost a whole book to explain one simple word like qi or one simple word like dao. What is the dao? And then How are we gonna explain the Tao if the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao, which is how the Tao Te Ching, the classic of Taoism begins. And yet, and yet on an experiential level, these things are in fact fairly easy to understand. In words, it becomes difficult, but if someone does qigong, you get it. If you read a great Chinese poetry, yeah, now I understood, understand about the chi of nature.
0: And I think the uh, point about experiencing it in nature is something that most people at least have had that sense at some point in their lifetime. Exactly. That, that there's something more than more than the aesthetics of it, that there's an energy that runs through it that you feel.
1: Yes, and, and I think, you know, all of our all of our ancestors lived in the same natural environment. I mean, yes, in different continents, different kind of environment, but we, we all required nature and still require nature to live.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it doesn't matter what your, what your background, where your, where your ancestry is from, you go back far enough in time and people were, they're living their survival dependent on sensitivity to the natural world. And what a, What a shame that we've lost so many of those sensitivities today that those faculties have atrophied. And in many respects, I feel like qigong is a way of reclaiming our past or awakening the perhaps even paleolithic senses, instead of having the eyes fixed on a string of words on a piece of paper or on a computer screen. We're learning, again, how to see, not just with with peripheral vision, but with spiritual vision. Instead of listening to one sound, to one piece of music, we're listening to all the sounds of nature. So there's a widening and expansion of the senses that is required in order to live in harmony with and to survive in the natural world. Those are precisely the kind of senses that we are using while practicing something like tai chi or just about any kind of I mean, it starts as simply as learning how to sense the ground under your feet i remember one of my teachers one time half half jokingly said don't stand on your feet stand on the ground so most of us are literally standing on our own two feet but not on the ground we don't feel the ground under our feet well still another teacher used to put it this way she said stand under your feet stand under your feet. Well, that's that's a process that in Qigong and in Chinese martial arts is called rooting, like the root of a tree. So you imagine your feet are reaching into the ground as though you're a tree with deep roots. And that puts you actually energetically in touch with the life energy, the qi of the earth, which then feeds you. Uh, so again, I feel these are just natural abilities that have atrophied because of the I, I think, unnatural lifestyle that we're most of us are living right now.
0: And that, that brings me to where I would like to go next, if you don't mind, which is to talk about your beginnings in this and and how, you got to be involved in it so deeply, because I, I think back to the the times that you're talking about where you first started learning this. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, to my own background, the things that I was interested in as a young age. And, you know, I was in martial arts also, but it was percussive martial arts. You know, I wanted to be able to hit harder as a teenager. You know, and I'm thinking about you, as this young person, back when Qigong was virtually unknown by, by you know almost any American wouldn't even know what Qigong was, and here you were at that young age studying these internal arts. So, so take us to the young Ken Cohen and how you got to be involved in all of this.
1: Well, actually, when I started learning Taiji and Qigong. I felt it was a confirmation that experiences I'd had many years earlier as a young child had value and were important. So in fact, I would say my Qigong story starts even earlier than my formal training. When I was about, oh, I guess it was about six years old or so, I was living in New York City, and the kids in my neighborhood, for some reason, had a passion for throwing rocks at each other. We would gather on opposite sides of the street and have these mock battles, throwing small stones. And one day I was in my uh, having this rock war (laughs) battle with the other kids across the street. And they had gotten a giant, a a 12-year-old, looked like a giant to me, to join their side, to join their army. And he was a little league pitcher. So he picked up a rock, and I was, as usual, holding a garbage can cover as a shield. (laughs) The boy threw the rock at me, a fastball, and I did the most bizarre, crazy thing. I I don't know what got into me. I dropped my garbage can cover and held out my arm in a rounded posture. Uh, the, The rock exactly hit my forearm. It probably should have broken my forearm, but I was in this altered state. I immediately went running into my house. I was right in front of my parents' house, and I was all excited. I still remember what I said. I said, mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy, listen to what just happened to me. And I told them how the little league pitcher had thrown the rock at my arm. And that I still remember today exactly what I said to them. I said, he couldn't hurt me because I was in my body. This is what I said to them. I said, he couldn't hurt me because I was in my body. Many years later, well, about 10 years later, I found out that that exact position, which I still remembered, was called ward off, was called ward off in Taiji. It's the same rounded posture, which is said to to build a resilient and buoyant energy that prevents impact injuries. So if a flying object were to hit you, it's not that you're invulnerable, but you're less likely to be injured, so there's the early beginning, really in my in my childhood. And when I first saw Taiji, I was uh, 15 or 16 years old. I was attending a workshop with Alan Watts. It was a residential workshop that is uh, everybody stayed there. There were there was lodging for all the participants. It was at Bucks County Seminar House in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. That was the sort of early Esalen Esalen Institute, you could say, or Esalen-like workshop center on the east coast of the United States. And during a lunch break, when everyone was outside eating lunch, uh, out by the grass and by some picnic tables, there was a guy out in the field doing some eerie slow motion exercise. I had no idea what it was, but I was almost like in a trance watching it i felt so great i felt so relaxed i felt that same sense of empowerment even just watching him that i remembered from that experience when i was 6 years old But this is what i've got to do again i didn't know it was tai chi i had no idea what it was i went over to him afterwards i said uh, excuse me what were you doing and he told me it was this you know ancient chinese exercise now, to show you how little I knew, I said, oh, did you make that up? He said, no, I had, I had teachers. It's a specific series of movements, a specific choreography. I said, do, do people teach this? Is there a way I can learn? He said, yes, you can usually find a teacher. Well, maybe not so usually back then. But luckily enough, not long thereafter, when I started the Chinese language, there was a note on the bulletin board at the university that someone was teaching Taiji in my neighborhood, close to where I was living, just a few subway stops away. Uh, So I started Taiji and the Chinese language at more or less the same time. I was a teenager and I wasn't doing it because I needed to be healthy. I did need to be, my health was terrible. However, I really feel like what was driving me was simply my love of the art. I had no idea why, I just knew I had to practice it and it felt great. Only later in retrospect did I look back and realize how much my physical and mental health had improved. Uh, You know, I used to have, uh, when I was very young, I had chronic bronchitis for years and years. I was on antibiotics all the time, Uh, it was kind of a mess. And my life really, really changed around. In fact, I think one reason that my parents, especially my mom, was, was so supportive of what I was doing, you know, what I was doing was unorthodox, to put it mildly, was because of the change she saw in my, my physical health, and the kind of friends I had, in my greater ease socially. She saw the changes that were occurring. Uh, So I I did Taiji for the sheer love of it and uh, fell in love with every aspect of it. The exercise, you could say, the martial arts applications, even to the point of freestyle sparring. And then about 1973, around five years into my training, B.P. Chan uh, came to the United States for the first time, ended up staying there. And I enrolled in his very first classes learning the other internal martial arts. By internal, I just mean martial arts that have a strong qigong component that can be practiced for nei sioyang, for inner cultivation, rather than exclusively as a form of self-defense. And so from B.P. Chen, I learned still another style of Taiji called Chen-style Taiji, as well as bakwa jang, a circular art. Yi Chen, a more linear internal art, and many styles of qigong and Taoist meditation. I stayed with him for several years, of course, until the end of his life. I remained his student. You, once you're a student of someone, you're kind of always a student. A lot of these old masters have just this infinite well and repertoire of wisdom and technique. Uh, but then I also worked with other people, Madame Gao Fu. I was fortunate enough to be one of her co-translators when she came to the U.S. and then uh, studied with her privately in Qigong and Shen-style Taiji. And my my very dear Dr. Huang, the Taoist abbot, that's a whole other story, perhaps another interview. (laughs) But Dr. Huang was a Taoist abbot from Southern China. And a true Chinese Renaissance man, he was an acupuncturist, made his living as an acupuncturist. He was one of the uh, directors of the early licensing boards for acupuncture in the state of California. Uh, He was a feng shui master and I learned uh, meditation from him. But, you know, I think the most important thing I learned from Dr. Wong when I think back to my years of being his apprentice, you know, being over his home th- three times a week, cooking him breakfast, offering incense at his altar, sitting and chatting with him, taking him out for a meal, going to Chinese New Year's celebration, all those different things I did with Dr. Wong. What stands out the most right now, just thinking back, is compassion, kindness. Generosity, and I would even add humor and mischievousness. I think those are those are the main things I learned. And wonderful stories of old China of a world that hardly exists anymore. Remember, he was born nineteen ten. As an example of that, that humor. I remember one time I went to see Doctor Wong. I'd already moved out of his area and. He was living in California at that time I was living in the mountains in Colorado I moved and I went back to see my dear old teacher and uh, dr. Wong and I sat down at the you know at the dinner, dinner table and uh, he said Ken I have become too popular I said dr. Wong that's wonderful he was I think he was in his 80s at the time I said that's wonderful dr. Wong he said, but I feel like a bad Chinese doctor because i become so popular that even if a patient needs to see me that week, I don't have space in my schedule. I have to schedule them a week later. So I feel irresponsible. I said, oh, that's too bad, Dr. Wong, but I'm so happy that you're getting the, re- the respect that you deserve, that people have heard about you. And then he looked at me with this twinkle in his eye. I knew some, some lesson was coming. He said, but I have found a solution. I said, what's that? He said, provided the patients do not have a contagious illness and that they are mobile, I asked them to meet me in the cafe, specifically the Cafe Med, Cafe Mediterranean on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. I knew the cafe well. And I looked at Dr. Wong, uh, I'm thinking to myself, you know, what, how is this relevant to your patients? He said, I asked the ones that need to see me this week but I don't have time in my schedule. I asked them all to meet me at the cafe. I said, uh, uh-huh. He said, then I shake hands with each of them. When we get together for tea or coffee, I shake hands and say, how are you? How are you? How are you? And we sit down and we have our tea or coffee and pastry. I said, uh, yeah. Then Dr. Wang gave me what could be called the punchline. He said, then they call me back that afternoon and tell me, I don't know what you did when you shook hands with me, but you can cancel my appointment. (laughs) I'm all better. I'm all better. And then when we went back to Dr. Wong's house, this is what I mean by the mischievousness. When we went back to Dr. Wong's house, he uh, told me after we had this meal together, again, I was visiting my old teacher and we're sitting in his living room as we did for so many years. I was his more formal apprentice. He said, you know, when you when you're truly connected, your whole body is the acupuncture needle. Mm. That's even something as simple as shaking someone's hand can be healing. And that in fact, and and here's the gem, he said, every encounter with another human being has the potential for healing, but also has the potential for harming. And this is why we need to take care of ourselves, take care of our chi, our life energy, do our practices, And not have any hideouts. Take care of our mental health as well. Have the courage to look within. Take care of our spiritual and mental well-being. If we have that commitment and we're doing our qigong, we're doing something that enhances our life energy, then you can just shake hands with someone and they feel so much better. So I I always take that that lesson, which to me is, you know, when Dr. Wong said that to me, that's what I think Aldous Huxley would have called the perennial wisdom. That's, that's ancient wisdom that in, in a sense belongs to all people, though expressed in Dr. Wong's uniquely wonderful Taoist way.
0: What a beautiful story to end our first session with, um, Ken. I, I love that story. I may borrow that to use it at some point in the future if that's okay. Absolutely. And uh, I think we can end here. and, And certainly that is an inspiring note to end on and to invite our listeners to come back to hear even more in part two. So Ken, thank you so much for being with us in part one. Thank you, Bob. This has been Healing and Spirituality in World Cultures with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and share with everyone you know who might benefit from these messages. Until next time, remember, be kind and loving to yourself and others. Together, we can heal ourselves and help build a better world.